Uh, we're starting a, uh, a short series this morning. Uh, it's going to be about four weeks, and actually exactly four weeks, and uh, it's going to be in, uh, on the theme of parenting. Now, I know that some of us in here are not parents, and you have repented of ever parenting. You stop. You're like, I'm done. Not doing that again. And, uh, but I want to encourage you not to check out through these next four weeks. Uh, parenting is a discipleship issue. We need to grow as parents. And when I say we, I really do include myself in that. Um, we have a responsibility, as we just uh, demonstrated with uh, little Cora, to raise our children and nurture our children in Jesus. And if you've ever tried to parent, you know how difficult that is. Uh, cl- the closer that a relationship is, the more of our brokenness comes out. And it's hard to uh, cancel that out. It's hard to defeat our brokenness in our lives. And so we need help. We need love. We need encouragement. We need truth. Uh, we need to be challenged, reminded of what our role is as parents. I will say this. Um, these, the things that you're going to be learning over the next four weeks translate to every relationship that you have. This isn't just applicable to your relationship with your kids. This translates to every relationship that you have. And so I want to remind you of that. Please don't check out with us. And if this, if you're still sitting there thinking, man, this just isn't even in my, my area of interest, I want to remind you that we are all one in Jesus. And your struggle is my struggle, whether or not I can relate to that or not. Your hard, hardship, your burden is my burden. Now, I may not be close to every single person in here, but at least what we can do as followers of Jesus is to be a part of a four-week series where we say, okay, I'm going to submit to this, listen to this, hear this, and uh, with my brothers and sisters who need some encouragement and extra training. So I just want to encourage you with that. Um, When Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, was asked, after he had his fourth kid, I think he has like five or... 14 now, um, when he was asked, what's it like to have a fourth child? He said this, imagine that you're drowning and somebody hands you a baby. Somebody hands you a baby. That's what it's like to have four kids. I can attest to that. Um, that, that reality became real to me once again, when for some reason unknown to me, I took my kids to the magic kingdom on Saturday. Um, I'm still repenting for my behavior that day. It was a rough day. Um, Yeah. I know some of you are thinking, the horns had such a blast. And they did. They did. It was almost like we were with them the whole time. Um, But yeah, it was was a day of testing and and it was a day of um, a lot of repentance for me. Um, Drowning brings out a lot of stuff in our relationships. Drowning shows us who we are. Drowning reminds us of our flesh, our sin, our brokenness. Sometimes the relational ruptures that are in our relationships are buried and and suppressed for a while and they seem to have disappeared. And then a tough day at the Magic Kingdom brings those ruptures back to the surface, which is why I want to start off today talking about and setting the stage for the next four weeks by talking about having a culture of tenderness in our homes. A culture of tenderness Uh, Last week, last Saturday, uh, Tim Holler did a beautiful job doing a parenting conference for us, and he encouraged us by saying these words. He says, a lot of us feel the pressure to be perfect parents. He says, don't be perfect parents. He said, be good enough. 
Just be good enough. And I'm hoping that today when we talk about tenderness, what you don't walk away with is the burden to try to be something that seems as though it's a million miles away and you could never reach it, but that your heart is really encouraged and given life and hope that something beautiful can take place in your families. That's what we want to happen. Whether you would consider your family to be strong, mm, iffy, or running on fumes. We want you to be encouraged and built up. And so if you would join me in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Ephesians 4, 17. I want to just acknowledge real quick that this is not a text about parenting. I know that. I know that. But it is a text about how we are to interact with one another in Jesus. And so that means by default, by implication, I should say, this is a text on family, how we interact with our family. I've got two of my kids here today. They're helping out in Clubhouse this morning. My son Levi, my 14-year-old, is not just my son in my flesh. He's my brother in Jesus. My daughter Maya, she's turning 16 next month. Tomorrow, this coming month, uh, not tomorrow, but you know, November starts soon. Anyway, so she's turning 16 next month. Um, it's, re- it's remarkable to me that 16 years have passed since she was born at Abbott Northwestern Hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It seems like yesterday. But she is my sister in Jesus. My little Micah, I don't think he's come to faith in Jesus yet. I don't think he gets who Jesus is. But when he does, he will be my brother in Jesus. And my little Claire, she is my sister in Jesus. My wife is my sister in Jesus. And so every text that talks about the way we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ, by implication, is a text about the way that we do family with one another. And I think it would really help for us to adopt that posture that our children are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They really are. So how can we love them better? How can we serve them better? How can we do that? So Ephesians chapters 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Don't walk like them. Paul's t- teaching, to, uh, talking to um, a city, a large city, a large Gentile city in modern-day Turkey, a city that was full of idol worshipers and pagans, and many of these people had had come to Christ. And he's talking to a church that was generally comprised of people who were formerly idol worshipers, pagan pagans. They weren't raised in a Jewish home. They didn't know who Yahweh was, the God of Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They only knew foreign gods, uh, pagan gods. And he says that You must no longer walk as Gentiles do, people who were in paganism, people who had no idea who the one true God was. Don't walk like them. In the futility of their minds, don't walk like them. The futility of their minds. What does he mean by the futility of their minds? And he teases this out in the next verse. He says, this is what futility means in your thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. So they have dark thinking, stubborn, blind thinking that does not recognize the truth of Jesus. 
They are alienated from the life of God. They are cut off from the reality of Jesus and the truth that is Jesus. Why are they alienated from God? Because of this darkened understanding, because of their ignorance. Not because Jesus isn't really all he's cracked up to be. It's because they're deceived. They're deceived. They're alienated from God, cut off from God, divided from God. The potential to be united with God has been destroyed by sin, by sin. And this is all due, Paul says, to their hardness of heart. Their hardness of heart. Not necessarily because of alien or anti-biblical philosophy, but because their hearts are hard. There's a streak of meanness. Apathy relationally. There's a hardness that keeps them from being able to feel the feelings of others. And most notably, Jesus. They have hard hearts. Hearts that are hard to penetrate with truth. And this hardness of heart has ruptured the potential to know God, but not for these Christians, formerly Gentiles, who were alienated from God. The gospel broke through their hard hearts, and they came to Jesus. And Paul is telling them something that we all need to remember, that there is a drift that we all have to go back to the Gentile ways of old. Darkened understanding, stubbornness, meanness, rage, unforgiveness and bitterness. We all feel drawn back to that. It's the only life we know, right? It's the only life we know. It feels comfortable there. We don't like it necessarily, but it's something that we know. And the deception is, is that if we live there, it's something we have a little bit of control over. I know my way around that dark room. I'd rather be blind than be in the light and have to learn a whole new way of living. And that's what he's saying here. These people have been reconciled to God, yet are compromised by old relational habits. And Paul warns them, do not return to the old ways of the hard heart. Do not return to the old ways of the hard heart. He does not say don't return to the old ways of bad theology. He doesn't say don't return to the old ways of pagan philosophy. He doesn't say don't return to the old ways of of pagan sacrifices and ritual prostitution. He doesn't say that. He says don't return to the ways of the hard heart. The hard heart. I doubt many people, if they were asked, why don't you name your top ten sins, hard heart would even make that top ten. We name behaviors that are destructive and addictive, and necessarily so. Those those aren't good. But a hard heart? Is that really our problem? In Paul's mind, yeah. A hard heart is. A hard heart. And we'll see that this hardness of heart not only alienates us from God, but from one another. And I want you to think family here. 
our hard heart alienates us from one another. Think family. And so I want to just say this on the front end. And I think this is substantiated in Scripture. Our family's greatest enemy is a heart that can no longer feel each other's feelings. The only marriages in my experience that can be resurrected is when both partners are able to re-empathize with one another. You can do Paul Tripp Bible studies until the cows come home, but that does not soften your heart. Is that a tool to do that? Yes, yes. Marriage helps are wonderful. But the only marriages that are truly raised up resurrected from the dust and ashes of brokenness and hurt into a place of safety once again are when both partners are able to feel each other's feelings. When both partners are able to feel sympathy for one another again when the other has been hurt. If you can't feel sympathy from one another, for one another, no matter what your relationship is, your relationship is broken. If someone in our lives is hurt and you don't feel they're hurt, that's a big sign that relationship has brokenness in it. That's a big sign. Verse 19. They have become callous. I can't feel. And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Whoa. They've given themselves up to that. This world, my friends, that is shaping us, shaping us right now, makes us callous. And somehow that callousness leads to rejecting truth and greedily practicing impurity. Greedily practicing impurity sensuality, greed, and impurity. There's a guy, I mentioned this uh, last week, uh, getting Chip Dodd. He wrote a book called The Voice of the Heart. And he said this. He said, we've got a choice to take one of two paths in this life. You can make this decision whenever you want. You can take the path of a full-hearted life or the path of a survivor. Here's what a full-hearted life looks like. A full-hearted life, contrary to what you might anticipate, is not one that is impervious to feelings like hurt, sadness, loneliness, anger, and guilt. The full-hearted life is the person who interacts with those feelings. Because this person knows that those feelings are gifts from God to help us discover where we are. Holler talked about that last week when God came seeking Adam and Eve in the garden and he said, where are you? That wasn't a question of geography. Where are you? What part of the globe are you on right now? It was a question of the state of your heart. Where are you? What's going on in here? Why is it, what's going on that's causing you to hide from me? God is saying, where are you? And so the person who is taking the path of the full-hearted life 
is a person who also understands or is growing to understand as I am that you don't suppress those feelings when you feel them. You, what Chip Dodd says, is you feel your feelings. And you must recognize that for a relationship to survive and thrive, there must be a healthy expression of those feelings. I'm feeling lonely for you. I'm feeling glad that I'm in your presence. I'm feeling hurt by you. Expressing your feelings is the mortar of relationship. And Dodd says that the only way you can experience true gladness is if you know how to interact with your sadness, your hurt, your loneliness, your anger, and so on. If you know how to do that, you can experience real gladness no matter the circumstance. Real gladness. When we had a lot of fear on Friday, there were people that reached out to us. It made me feel glad. It made me feel glad. There was hurt. There was fear, a lot of fear. We also felt really glad, really glad, really glad. But then there are survivors. Survivors, and all of us are survivors, so don't, don't think you're not one. <laughs> really, to live a full-hearted life is the choice to quit being a survivor and to thrive, to live a full-hearted life. A survivor, and we are all this, are people who have been hurt and wounded by somebody we should have been able to trust. We all have that story, every one of us. An authority figure, a parent, someone. Someone behaved in a way that did violence to our souls at one time. And because of this, we decided that we would never be hurt again, and so we suppress our feelings. We push down our sadness, our shame, our guilt, our fear, our anger, all that stuff. We push it down, and we try not to feel that. But the only way you can not feel that is by medicating. With addiction, sin. You see, this is why I think Paul is saying here that a calloused heart leads to becoming greedy for all kinds of impurity. We're not known, and we don't know others. We're living the life of survivors. And so a, a word of caution and an encouraging word of love to those of you who are languishing in sin and you just can't break out of it. Step one is to be known and for you to love, for you to know where you are, for you to walk with your feelings. And in relationships that God has put in your life, to express your feelings, be known by them, and also become curious and know them. Know them. So this leads to medicating. And it makes us all survivors. I'm not saying we're all survivors in the sense that we're all addicts. I'm not. I'm not. But I don't want to use the word addict in a pejorative sense either where that's bad addict, you know. I've got a friend that pastor, a wonderful, wonderful pastor friend of mine in, in, uh, um, in Nashville. Um, I've almost got him talked into coming here to do a weekend seminar on how to suffer. He's been dealing with uh, fourth stage uh, cancer for about two years now. He's 37 years old. He's one of the most devoted, strongest brothers I know. 
And he says this, we're all recovering from something. All of us are. All of us are. So this is happening in our lives, and this trickles down into our families, how it's impacting our relationships with one another. Our callousness we import into our families. And that lust for impurity, that lust for impurity impacts our families. It impacts our spouses, our children. It impacts our relationships in in the church. It does great destructive damage. It's happening in all of our families to some degree. But in verse 20, Paul says something with an exclamation point. So I'm going to read it the way that it's, that it's uh, emphasized. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. See the exclamation point? Exclamation points always mean yelling to me. So I try not to use those in like text messages. And, and, but times, if I do that with you, it means I'm happy also. Because I like, yay, that's what I'm also saying. So if you ever interpret it that way, that's what I mean. But sometimes, a lot of times, exclamation points refer to just yelling, emotion, overflowing, bubbling over, enthusiasm, passion, fervor, maybe even aggression. He says, that's not the way you learned in Christ. And I think there's a sense of grief here. Because the people that he's writing to are behaving like they used to in their Gentile ways. They've returned to some of those ways. And so I want to remind all of us here, look at that word learned. But that's not the way you learned in Christ. We are learners in Christ, my friends, always learning Jesus' way of doing family. Yes, we're learning Jesus' way of doing relationships. But remember, this applies to families too. We are learners in Christ. And for the rest of our lives, we are learning how to do relationships in our families. We're learning. We don't graduate from this. Discipleship should never be a past tense word. When were you discipled? I mean, I I get what you mean by that, but your your discipleship never ends on this side of the second coming of Jesus. I'm going to have blind spots 20 years from now, 30 years from now. The day before Jesus returns in all of his glory, if I'm still alive, I'm going to have blind spots and areas in my life that need to be fixed. So we're always learning in Jesus. Always, always. We should be at least. So the question is, what have we learned in Christ? What is it that Paul is saying, applicable to our families and all of our relationships with each other, what is it that we've learned in Christ? What is it that Paul is saying, you should have this nailed? And I think there are a couple of parts here. Part one is verse 21 and 22. It deals with parting ways with the old way of doing things, the old way of living. That's 21 and 22. 23 and 24 deal with reaching for something better, more beautiful. Make sense? 21, 22, what we're stiff-arming. 23, 24, what we're grabbing for, reaching for, right? Make sense? Is that good? Y'all follow me? You tracking? Okay, all right. I'm just trying to bug you now. So, all right, verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. Assuming that. (laughs) Big assumption here, all right? This is for people who have found Jesus or been, more correctly, been found by him. He says this, as the truth is in Jesus... 
Then he says in 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, I want to I zoom in on a phrase, a couple of phrases in verse 21. He said, taught in him. Assuming that what you have heard about him and were taught in him. See, if I were writing this, I would have said taught about him. But he says taught in him. And then he embellishes on that more by saying after that comma, as the truth is in Jesus. So we need to, we need to get something squared away here. That the instruction in the way of Jesus is not just a classroom experience. It is not being in a classroom learning about Jesus. It is about being in Jesus learning his ways. Because remember what he's dealing with here? Gentiles, what's their biggest problem? They've been alienated from God. And he says that when we have been reconciled to God, something beautiful takes place. We've been raised up with Jesus and we are literally with him, in him, learning his ways. This is huge. When I hear that, this is what comes to my mind. That the posture that we are to have as learners of Jesus is this. That as I hear of Jesus and learn of Jesus, I sit in Jesus, I am washed by Jesus, and I am in in fellowship with Jesus. Now, I know that's very abstract. How do I do that? I don't know exactly, but here's what I do know. That we've got to go from making the jump to a couple of Bible devotionals And maybe jotting down a note or two on Sunday morning. Not to unending reading of scripture. That's not what I'm saying. But we've got to jump from the anemic evangelical experience that we've had. That has shaped us. To something more life-giving and beautiful. And I call it immersion. Immersion. I do not believe. I've I've been in ministry. I'm not trying to pull the seniority card here. But... You know, I've been doing this for over two decades now, full time. And what I have seen is this, that the people who grow in Jesus, who mature in Jesus, are not people who consider Christianity a hobby. Jesus is their life. And that's hard because that means butting up against scripture that prophetically stamps on some idols in my heart. And I don't like that. Man, I don't like that. But that's what it means. So it means facing my own stubbornness and my own rebellion and gradually those things withering in the presence of God. I use the word immersion. I just, I like that word. My wife, she's fluent in Spanish. A lot of people don't know that because she doesn't like to speak Spanish because she's a little insecure about that. She took Spanish for four years in high school and she knew vocabulary. She knew conjugation, stuff like that. But she couldn't speak it. And then she went down to the Baja Peninsula in Mexico and worked there for a year after high school in an orphanage caring for babies who were sick and abandoned. And for a year of her life, while babies were throwing up on her, the only language she heard was Spanish. 
And she remembers coming back for a visit at home, sitting in the bus terminal in Southern California, and it hit her. As the announcements were being made in Spanish, she didn't have to think anymore. It just, she knew it. This is what I think Paul's getting at here and what the scriptures get at when it talks about discipleship, maturity in Christ. It's being immersed in it. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying immersed in church services all week long. But I'm not saying don't do that either. I'm talking about being with the body of Jesus in a real and shaping way. So that you begin to think differently over time. Think about yourself differently and think about others differently. We need this in our lives, my friends. We need to be immersed in Jesus. So when we're up here pushing community groups and midweek and Sunday morning gatherings, this isn't to stroke our own egos so we can feel good about ourselves. We're growing up, got our growing church going on here. We love you. We want you to grow in Jesus. And we know you can't do everything, but we want you to take your faith so seriously that you know that you need to be immersed in the body of believers, in the Word of God with other, with other followers of Jesus. We need this, guys. We need this. I can't do this without other believers in my life. I should say it this way. If I'm really known then I will know I can't do this without other believers in my life. We can do church so the cows come home and not be known. And we're like, you know, okay, I, I can see why some people need others. I don't. I'm an introvert. So the excuse for, you know, the blanket excuse for pretty much everything these days. Speaking as an introvert. So yeah, verse 23, I'm getting carried away uh, and off script. And, and he says this. He says, and to be, re- this is where we're reaching for something better, something more beautiful. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, to be renewed in our minds. So here's the question. I want to jump down to verse 29. What does it look like to be renewed in our minds? Okay, the runway's in front of us. Let's wrap this up and make some really big points for us and our families. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up, as fits the occasion. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. What is that? What does he mean by no corrupting talk? What does he mean by that? Only such as is good for building up. So the words that we use in our families and in our relationships with everybody else are words that build up people, not draw their heart from Jesus. And drawing people's hearts from Jesus is easy. We are all sitting ducks. You know what so-and-so told me? What? What did he say? Tell me. I don't know if I should say it. No, just tell me. You You can trust me, you know. We are sitting ducks, man. We are so easily taken by corrupting talk. We're so easily taken by it. Which is why we've got to fight it and fight it hard. We've got to fight it hard. That it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now the whole context here is the way we treat one another. And it's here that Paul says, don't grieve the Spirit. Now I grew up in the charismatic church. And grieving the Spirit meant if worship didn't go long enough, we grieve the Spirit. 
I'm not saying that that's not possible to do that, but that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that the way we treat one another and the way that we do violence against one another's hearts actually grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Spirit. What does it mean to grieve someone? What's that? Mourn? Wow. Wound? Anything else come to mind? What's that? Destroy confidence? What did you you all say? Accept loss, grief. How about sadness? Hurt. So we got sadness, loss, hurt. Now we can't do damage to God. I want to be clear about that. God is impervious to any damage. But mysteriously, God can suffer in his heart. He can be let down. He can be grieved. He can hurt. He can feel hurt. Hold on. Ron's talking. What am I? Just imagine having this grieving, sad person inside of you. You carrying around this person in your body. So I just want to. Why are we carrying that. around the Holy Spirit in our body? What does that mean? Our bodies are the house. Is the house of God. And the one who is joined with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And so his sadness becomes yours. And why is the Holy Spirit grieved? Because we've done violence to one another. Because you and me are one too. And so when I'm doing violence to you and your soul, I'm doing violence to Jesus and his soul. And Jesus' soul is grieving over what we've done to one another. Over how we've treated one another. This is how we grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying if God's really moving and we cut worship in half, that doesn't make God, God's not there going, yeah, yippee, good job. That's not what he's talking about here. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something far more profound than that. More than a church service. He's talking about us as a body of believers who are one in Jesus. We do violence to one another. Violence. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another in Christ as he forgave you. As he forgave you. The text speaks of giving Satan a foothold in this chapter among us. But he says to be tender-hearted, toward one another. I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts because I believe, I used to read this text and think to myself, okay, be kind, be tenderhearted, only say good things that like bring grace to people who are listening to me. And all that seemed like a mountain to climb. I didn't know how to do any of that. And I'm just commenting on my own, my own sinfulness here. How do you do that? But I'm totally convinced. I'm totally convinced that as families that make up the family of God, that step one is to make the goal tenderheartedness. Not be a better dad, be a better mom. Not make sure my kids are acting right, but tenderheartedness. I think that our goal in our families needs to be to be tender toward one another. And here's what I mean. 
that doesn't mean you're always gentle. This morning, one of my kids was upstairs. I said, 10 minutes ago, we were leaving in five minutes. And so I don't want to walk up the stairs. I'm sorry, that's just me. I know some of y'all are like, we don't yell in our house. We yell in our house, okay? We do that. Um, I'm not saying we rage in our house, but I'm not going upstairs to tell Levi to come downstairs. Levi, we were supposed to leave five minutes ago. Come on, you know. That's what I'm talking about. Not doing violence to my son, but yeah, we do yell in our house a lot. So we love to yell. My wife would say, I hate your yelling, but you know, it's just something she's got to grow in. Um, We're learning to, you know, merge our lives together. I want to challenge you to see the goal, to see your goal being this, to relearn how to feel your children's feelings. Learn how to feel your children's feelings. Feel their feelings. Empathize with them. Jesus incarnated himself among us. We take his cue and do the same thing with our kids. Feel your children's feelings. If you want to be an amazing parent, feel their pain. Feel their hurt. Even our kids, as much as we love them and sometimes idolize them, oftentimes something gets by us that we don't see, and that is we lose the ability to empathize with our children and love them well. So feel their feelings. Put yourselves in their shoes. When you had that snarky or irritable comment in the car, don't just blow that off as nothing. Remember something profound about being a parent. You will always have emotional and psychological power over your children. Always. It is hard for them to say, Mommy, Daddy, this hurt me. So you have to go to them. That's what being a parent means. Yesterday, we're driving back in the car from the hospital. I have my way of doing things. In my car, I look like a bachelor. It's clean. There's nothing on the floor. I like it that way. I don't like getting in my car, opening the door, and French fries are hitting me in the face. I don't want that. In my wife's car, the van, if I locked you in there, you wouldn't die. You could live for a week. The first time I met Becky was in Lethbridge, Alberta, and we were at this church service. And she's, I'm, I'm, the, the people tell me, yeah, you're, Chris, you're staying with the Meadowake family. And I saw her and I was like, booyah. And so, um, so I'm, she's trying to find her car. And once we found it, she opens the door. And literally, there were about 10 or 12 Happy Meals and Big Macs in the car all over the place. She says it's her sister. I'm still not sure about that. But um, anyway, so um, Becky makes up for me in a vast amount of areas, patience, kindness, tenderness, gentleness, pretty much all the gifts of the, the fruits of the Spirit. So I don't have anything honoring that. But um, we're driving back yesterday from the hospital. We're feeling good, man. We're grateful to God. And she did the air conditioner wrong. And I didn't go off on her or rage at her, but I just said, hey, you know, you, you don't do that. Do this. Then about 30 seconds later, I'm sitting there thinking, that is so stupid. It's just the air conditioner. And my pride, for some reason, didn't want me to recognize and validate her that maybe that was just even slightly hurtful. And I said, Becky, that was the dumbest thing. You can do the air conditioner the way you want to do the air conditioner in my car, you know. 
I don't put myself out there as though I am so great at this. This is something that I'm learning. But I'm learning that the times in my marriage and early on, and she, my, my wife was married to a child who raged against her and hurt her, hurt her very much. And uh, uh, our, we're hitting 20 years and two months because of her. Really, we really are. But um, I'm re- I've recognized that it's not just the raging that did violence to our relationship. It's also the little selfish behaviors that seem so small that I'm able to brush off. But I'm remembering times where trusted people hurt me. And those little selfish behaviors were like thorns. They hurt. And so one of the greatest gifts that we can give our children is to validate their hurt. It's not to wait for them to tell us that they're hurt. It's to go to them and say, honey, I'm sorry I hurt you. And this is what I did. And to let them say to you, yes, this is what you did, if they want to. And then get down on your knee if they're that tall and apologize. I think the greatest gift that you can give your child is repentance. More than some of y'all feel guilty because you don't do enough Bible devotionals with your kids. I'm telling you, if you just give your kids transparency and vulnerability and repentance, it'll change your family's life. It'll change your family's life. You've got to validate your kids. You've got to send a message to them that you don't like it, that they're feeling hurt. And you want to help be an antidote to their hurt rather than continuing to do violence to them. So recognize that you have emotional and psychological power over your children. That's never going to go away. Today, my dad and my mom have emotional and psychological power over me to this day. I have to fight against that impulse of fear. Every one of us have that in our relationships. Every one of us do. My parents are wonderful, fantastic. I'm so excited about what God's done in our relationship over the last 20 years. I'm so excited. Some things we got planned to roll out next year, like a a marriage therapy, group therapy that they're going to oversee in our church. I can't wait to roll that out next year. But they still have emotional and psychological power over me. And I've got to be careful not to let that manipulate me. Not that they seek to do that, but I can be manipulated by my own fear and my own hurt. You're, You're giving that to your kids right now. So let me tell you something. You can't avoid that. Tim Holler said, we all screw up our kids. All of us do. (laughs) But here's what you can do in the meantime. Give them, validate their pain, and give them the gift of repentance. This is how you lead your home into becoming tenderhearted toward one another. This is how you can teach your kids how to have compassion and love. Because if you don't do this, you're training your children to be survivors. If they, don't, if they can't express their hurt, their loneliness, their sadness, and their anger to you, they're going to suppress it. And they're going to do the same thing to their kids. It's hard. What I'm telling you is not easy. But it is the way of Jesus. It is the way of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your saints. I thank you for their lives. Father, we need you. We need you desperately. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that through this series, we would not be overwhelmed with condemnation, but we would feel the weight of the conviction of the Spirit, which would spawn change in our lives. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for lowering yourselves to us 
and loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.